Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is executing on manufacturing technology. Our guest is Jane Arnold, manufacturing consultant and board member. In this conversation, we talk about advanced manufacturing technology, the importance of material flow transparency, throughput, cost-cutting, and captivating users with digital tools. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trun Arnevenheim and presented by Tulip. Jane, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing very well. Thank you, Trons. Happy to be here. Jane, you are a fascinating character. You've been in this business of various types of manufacturing for a while. You've worked in um, several different manufacturing businesses, and you started out with with a math degree, so I guess a very theoretical interest initially. That was down in Houston, right? And you became a process engineer in the chemical industry, Uh, and then your latest stint as a manufacturing executive at Stanley Black & Decker. But before that, I believe you had almost 30 years in controls engineering, and we'll talk about this a little bit. You worked in Germany, you worked in the US. What was it that got you started in manufacturing, Jane? So actually, Trond, um, I started manufacturing as a summer job. I was not planning on manufacturing. I had visions of being a doctor or something. But my summer job turned into 16 years at Sterling Chemicals, which is a small chemical plant in Texas City, Texas. That first summer, I worked with a great group of people, and I learned so much, and I was fascinated by how things worked and how you know the people would interact with the instruments and the decisions they made. That's actually how I started, and the math degree came as kind of a pivot because they didn't offer engineering classes during the day. So I finished up my degree with math in the evenings. It's been an interesting ride. So I did spend probably 20 years as a controls engineer, uh, the 16 years at Sterling Chemicals. And then I started at Covestro, which used to be Bayer Material Science as a controls engineer. With Bayer, I ended up being a unit lead and a plant manager for some time. And that was probably the most fascinating to actually have every day something new happening. Towards the end of that assignment as a plant manager or unit lead, uh, they asked me if I was interested in going to Germany in an executive position. And that was uh, four years in that role, uh, three years actually living in Germany. And it was really fascinating to go around the world and meet people and learn about different cultures and implementing technology in these different regions. When the pandemic started, I moved back to the U.S. to be near family And everything kind of shifted from there. And I decided I wanted to learn something new and started at Stanley Black & Decker and found, you know, making things fascinating. And uh, I'm really glad I made that switch. Hmm. I want to hear more about your perspective on what you just said, which is making technology work and going around the world, watching and advising on sort of technology implementation. Let's first maybe go to some of your experience as a process engineer. What is it that someone who's at more of a manager or executive level, what is sort of the first step for you when either you're told, you know, here's what we're implementing, or you're more likely perhaps coming into the middle of something where there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of technologies, 
and you're just trying to, I guess, optimize and, and figure out, you know, where do we go next? And obviously there's different technologies in different places and you're trying to move things around. What are the things that are going through your mind in that process? What is the most important thing for you? So it's kind of interesting when you say that as a process control engineer, I always felt like it was my job to make things work after someone else decided what was happening. But early in my career, I think in the mid to late 90s, I actually worked as an operator. We had already converted all panel board instruments to DCS, and we had been making slowly making process control improvements on the board. And uh, there was a, a union strike, uh, which turned into a lockout. So I spent four months as an operator. And those four months really changed my perspective on how things work or should work or could be successful. Because the nuance that the operator experiences every moment of his day um, is very important. And I think that when management makes decisions for operations, that they don't understand that nuance. And so I've made it my mission from there to always work as close to the point of impact as possible and to make sure that my teams, as you know, I was, I was uh, advancing, followed that same philosophy. So going around the world and meeting different people and uh, learning what it took for them to be um, on board was really an important part of the whole process. Jane, when, when you say operator, to you, that means basically the layer in a factory that actually executes the production of something. Is that right? So it refers That's to the correct. entire layer of the, of the people who are actually usually on the factory floor implementing some step-by-step -step process and the, the people who are actually the factory workers. Is that what you're talking about? Or is it, does it also for you include kind of the managers of those people and the supervisors and, and, and sort of those next layers? So it's really all of it. So when I think of operator, I think of the person with their hands closest to the process. That mm -hmm. when working with operators, I also work with the first and second layers of management because many of those people came up from operations. So they have a mix between understanding the actual process in the plant and, you know, the right way that things need to get done as far as procedurally. Uh, so I try to include um, as many people as possible when talking to them because you've got to get all those perspectives you know, it can't be one person making a decision. It has to be everyone working together in some fashion to be able to come up with the right solution. I guess this is something that I've experienced over the last two years, spending much more time with factory workers and, and in factories too. But I'm just curious, is there in your mind, you said that you were working as an operator and you felt that that was sort of an eye-opening experience. Do you feel that that's a typical thing? among senior managers to either come up from the ranks or to really spend a lot of time on the floor to understand what's going on there? Or do you feel that that is still a rarity? I would say it's still a rarity. There are some people who do it um, by choice because they want to learn what it's like to actually work in the field or on the factory floor. And at Sterling, we actually encouraged people to work closely with operations for a number of weeks to make sure that there was a little bit better integration. But it doesn't happen enough. I, I think that every new engineer out of college should spend you know, a month as an operator or a month as a maintenance hand and really learn how things work and, and how the people function in that environment. Hmm. 
Jane, this is not something I had rehearsed you on, but I know that you have spoken about this elsewhere, so I feel comfortable perhaps asking you, and you can answer if you want, but you're a female executive in a industry that doesn't have oodles of female executives that have this perspective that you're talking about now. How did that play out when you show up on factory floors? Or would you say that that is largely an issue that is not so relevant anymore on factory floor? My early years, um, you know, my, my father raised me that I, anything was possible, I could do anything. In my early years, I heard a lot about, you know, that I was just a girl, I couldn't do that, that sort of thing. And that actually motivated me to do it and to learn more and to push. And I even have one example where I had uh, some senior manager in a, what, at one company actually look me up and down and say, no, you can't help me. I'm like, okay, well, when you want your plant to run, call me back. And I learned that it was just part of it because there were so few women, you know, out of a thousand men on site, there were maybe 15 or 20 women and half of those were you know, administrative types or a couple of chemists. And there was uh, another one in the, the group with me. So it was, it was a bit unusual. As I moved to Covestro or, or Bayer, it was different because I was more accepted as a woman. I didn't really feel that difference. I did feel a difference because I don't have a PhD. So that was something that I, I kind of felt, you know, maybe working for a German company where there's a lot of PhDs in leadership. And then going to Stanley, it was, you know, I'm, I'm more now what I see is that people are accepted by what they bring to the table. Discrimination is still there. It still exists, but it has been slowly improving. The pandemic didn't help because many more women went home as the primary caregiver than the men did. But uh, I, I think that there's still a lot of opportunities for women and, and able to do the things that need to be done. Excellent. You mentioned Stanley. Let's uh, talk a little bit about that for a second. So Stanley Black & Decker, right, is a, is a huge company, a discrete manufacturing, very challenging business. What is their approach to technology and what, what were the, the kinds of things that you were faced with there? What, what was your role and, and where are they in, in sort of this specter of, of, of technology development? What's their perspective? So Stanley is a pretty interesting company. They have everything from fascinating products where they're very technically advanced to just the basics. And in manufacturing, it's the same. There are a few lighthouse sites that are very well advanced and many sites that much has happened. So as far as uh, technology, there was an effort at one time to kind of do everything at once. And it just became too much, it's especially if you're working for a company that's looking at the P&L you know, quarterly or monthly. It's difficult to do everything at once. And uh, what we ended up doing at Stanley is that they continue to roll out uh, the connected factory with a small workforce, as well as Tulip to support the frontline operations and to solve problems at the point of impact. The overall trying to do everything at once doesn't work. And I've seen across the industry that uh, many companies will buy into the hype and have trouble with the, the full execution and follow through because they're trying to do too much too fast. So you've got to be able to really integrate with the workforce and make sure that you're solving the problems that need to be solved. Well, so let's go a little closer on that, because it does seem to me that some of the things that are happening in Stanley, they do answer that call, right? You correct me. But there seems to be a fairly strong focus on figuring out how you can empower 
operators themselves. So there's a focus on many things. Obviously, it's a big company. So there's you know there there's a push towards more of the standard sort of industry 4.0. You know, let's do all of this. Let's automate. Let's you know completely transform everything. So you mentioned frontline operations. What did that mean to you when you were there? And what sort of experiences did you have? You mentioned uh, Tulip. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came into that process and how that sort of transpired during the period you were at Stanley? Well, Tulip was already a vendor with Stanley when I joined. There was a colleague of mine who had worked with Tulip at a different company in the past. They were only at the beginning of, of doing any sort of deployment. And it's considered a next-gen MES, which at first I was like, oh, there's no way this is an MES. You know, I'm used to the big monolithic systems. I've installed many. And I was like, this isn't going to happen. But I was, you know, open-minded. We, we already had a contract and we were going to start using it. And I realized over time that each project that we did was another link MES concept. So I did the exercise of going back to the ISA 95 architecture and looking at what it was we were doing with Tulip. And architecture-wise, we're still following the principles, but from a technology standpoint, um, it was really flatter. And uh, there were things that we were doing, like improving inventory management by connecting with SAP and doing you know, online counting of parts. We were doing first article inspection and pushing that information into our quality system. And then we were also doing OEE, interfacing directly with the machines and, and looking to see how can we make improvements. And I realized, you know, kind of after the fact, hey, we're actually building our own NES. But instead of having to you know, wait a year and spend a lot of money making a template, we were able to solve one problem at a time scale it and hook it all together. And so it all worked seamlessly. So it was, it was really a nice surprise for me. And when we went into the factories, we asked them, what's your biggest problem? What can I help you with? And that's how it all came about. So we engaged operations and leadership in the factories and solved their problems. Jane, this is so interesting to me as I have kind of walked around and asked different executives and also operators and people everywhere in an organization about this idea of whether you know you start top down or you start bottom up you seem to be saying something in between this was a bottom up effort but clearly you were involved so you were kind of the top down element and then you said scaling up can you tell me a little bit about how that process must work in a large organization because clearly you can't just give people a massive amount of tools or, or one tool and say, hey, you know, do whatever you want. How does that balance get struck between, okay, so you're not buying this massive MES that has a whole template that you then have to agree all on and then you launch it in 100 factories. So you're doing it differently, but you still eventually want to scale it. I, for example, went to one Stanley factory and, and watched one quality manager who was there at the time, uh, Sophia, and, and just watched her one or two applications that she had built as a non-software engineer and then talked to the operators that were using that. And I got to experience firsthand how happy the operators were and how surprised they actually were that they were excited about this app because they had expected, oh no, another training program. I don't even like computers. I don't know why is management having me do this, but this particular operator that I spoke to 
I mean, he didn't seem like he was just a mouthpiece. He literally said he, this was very exciting for him. Yes. He felt like he had almost built the app that he was now using. And he was like, I, I, I never thought I would be this excited. Right. So remember, I mentioned that I used to be a unit lead. So a right. plant manager, director level over manufacturing, and I had four production units under me. Um, whenever senior management came in with a new initiative, if we waited long enough, it would go away and they'd be focused on the other initiative. So I knew that the factory floor and the workforce not accepting some drive-by you know, initiative, it was not going to work. So we took the approach where we would um, interface with multiple layers in the organization. So yes, we talked to the factory leader, the plant manager at the site. We would talk with the continuous improvement or quality engineers, but we would also talk with the operators because and, and the maintenance uh, folks because we wanted to make sure that we were addressing their problem. And when you actually include them as part of the process and get their feedback and incorporate their feedback, they become part owner. And it makes a huge difference in the viability and longevity of this application. We had a small center of excellence team for Tulip. And what we would do is review each application to see, you know, when does it satisfy the privacy and security requirements? But also, is this something that we should roll out to other places? We'd make sure that we'd make it as standard as possible. You still have to allow some flexibility because every factory is going to be different. But to try and have that, you know, eighty percent piece that's standardized and locked down. So we, you know, use this method of uh, what some people may think of over communication and over engagement to make sure that it was successful. In the new book from Wiley, Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operations, serial startup founder Dr. Natan Linder and futurist podcaster Dr. Trond Arne Entheim deliver an urgent and incisive exploration of when, how, and why to augment your workforce with technology and how to do it in a way that scales, maintains innovation, and allows the organization to thrive. The key thing is to prioritize humans over machines. Here's what Klaus Schwab, Executive Chairman of the World Economic Forum, says about the book. Augmented Lean is an important puzzle piece in the fourth industrial revolution. Find out more on www.augmentedlean.com and pick up the book in a bookstore near you. Well, broadening this a little bit above, beyond one particular company, you mentioned sort of the industry 4.0 general rhetoric, which I, I think on this podcast we have been fairly skeptical about. Why is it that this particular broad notion of you know these clusters of technologies gets so much talked about in executive circles? And, and why is that somewhat toxic? It seems to me that you agree with many people that we have on this podcast that have experienced this you know, the metals backside of the hype around these manufacturing technologies. Can you enlighten us on, on how you see this? There is excitement among the executives, usually, around these clusters of Industry 4.0, whether it is, you know, AI or robotics and advanced machinery of any sort, and then IoT, kind of the knitting it all together. Why isn't that in and of itself helping anybody? Why does it need so much translation to be effective? So I, I think that Industry 4.0 is, is fascinating. So the phrase was coined, I think, in 2011 at Hanover Messe in Germany. And it's all about we have this advanced computing power and technology, and it's easier to create software that have an impact. 
the results that you get from implementing or deploying the software is real. It does happen. What they didn't start at the same time was how do you do it so it's sustainable that people actually engage and do that. And what I've seen at many companies is that Industry 4.0 fails because they have not actually engaged the workforce. They bought something, they're expecting magic, but they haven't got an embedded team that's actually making a difference all the way through. It's not something that happens overnight. It takes months really years of effort to make sure that everyone keeps using it, all the problems are solved, and, and that it's easy to use. It's really important that it's easy to use. So now I'm starting to see more industry companies looking to, well, how do we make it sustainable? You know, I had a company ask me uh, the other week, you know, what are we missing by not implementing technology? And at the end of this discussion, the plant manager said to me, or the CEO, he's like, well, you're very pragmatic. And the message that I get over the last three hours is that it, it's people focused and not technology focused. I said, that's right. You've got to have the technology, but you have to have the people want it. They need to pull and um, you need to include them in the process. So they'll accept it and actually make it better. Hmm. So it seems to me that what you're sort of saying is that the technology piece is almost actually the easiest part in the sense that I think many think of it as a you know enormous investment, so it doesn't feel easy. But you need to pick really carefully because you know you can overinvest in a technology, and then I guess it just gets put in the back room, or or really it, it certainly doesn't always contribute exactly what you thought it would. So how do you avoid that then, Jane? And you know, in large large organizations, they have big budgets, and they, you know, obviously the problems become bigger if you invest wrongly. But in in more smaller, right? The U.S. manufacturers, a lot of them are small. How should they approach this? Is it the same thing? They they also have to start with their their workers first, or or is it an easier decision for them? I think it's really a lot of the same. So they need to under you know decide what is the problem we need to solve. Is it actually a material flow problem in the factory? Is it a an inventory management problem? Is it you know whatever it is supply um, supply chain problem? Um, and and start from you know you've got to have the executive say hey this is the big problem I want to solve. But as you're solving that problem, you need to interact with all the people who are involved in that space because they're going to know where all the problems are. And there's no getting around that. Just buying the software, which I agree with you is the easy part, is not enough. You know, I mentioned that I was actually wanting to be a doctor. I was wanting to be a psychiatrist. And so in college, I took a lot of sociology and psychology classes. And then when I started working in manufacturing, I was um, looking at, uh, you know, take, studying body language and things like that. And when you engage the workforce properly, you see a difference in the acceptance and the way they listen to you and the overall success of the project you're doing. So factory psychologist is essentially yeah, what's there we go. For when you're implementing technology. <laughs> yes. Well, there's something to that, right? Technology is personal, I guess. All technology yes. is. It would seem that it's very an, an abstract force that just comes in and makes everything very efficient and smooth. But uh, you, I guess, have to accept Yes, that, that's going to happen, and, and accept that these these are positive changes. As you as you look into the future, uh, Jane, what do you see for manufacturing? What is happening now that gives you either hope, or are you perhaps more skeptical about the ways this is moving? I know there there are a lot of opinions out there about whether industry is moving in the right direction. There's obviously also fear around robotics, and and the workforce issues are persistent in this sector. 
whether it is, you know, calls for more training or calls for better relationships generally between management and workers. I mean, these are things that have been with us from the beginning of all industrial revolutions. Where do you see this sector moving? So manufacturing is not going away. It's here to stay. We, we have to make products for humans. Now, what I've seen over the past few years with the pandemic and the supply chain issues is that there has been quite a bit of jobs that have returned to the United States from overseas. And I'm seeing more companies focus on um, making where they sell to try to reduce the impact of supply chain problems. And when we look at the workforce shortage, I mean, it's real. It's not something made up. And the way you overcome that workforce shortage is to implement technology. So maybe you needed, I don't know, 10 people to run a line before, but you've automated some portions of it. And you've got, uh, you know, applications built. So work instructions are there, visual AI and telling if there's any problems and things like that. And maybe then you only need five people to run it. Well, if you only had five people to begin with, because you you're only have 50% of the workforce because you can't hire anyone, then you solve your problem with technology. I've never seen robotics as replacing the workforce, but actually enhancing the workforce or augmenting the work that's happening on the factory floor. And I, and I think you have to have both going forward to be successful. A lot of people would say that manufacturing is difficult. Is it becoming simpler because of new technologies or perhaps new management perspectives where we understand challenges better or technologies better? Or would you say it is just a very difficult business to be in because there's very real constraints? I guess the you know, factories themselves are their physical infrastructure and there's People issues, obviously, like you said, factory psychologists are needed here. Uh, you know, you need to motivate people to work together as a team. Is it just a hard business? I think it is a hard business. It doesn't have to be, but there's often so much change the the work the people. So you'll have a high turnover in factories or in manufacturing for whatever reason, maybe because the work is hard or you know there's a better opportunity down the street or something like that. That whenever you have that workforce turnover, you're going to not quite start at zero, but you're starting over because the new workforce has to learn the process, has to learn the problems and take all that on. So, And I think that's always going to be an issue. Now, if you have uh, some locations where the workforce is very consistent and steady, then you'll see over time slow, steady improvements. So when I worked at a chemical plant in Texas City and the one in, in Baytown, um, it was the same. You look back over time and you say, oh, all, all those changes, you know, most of them are actually sustainable and still running. And that is possible, but it does take dedicated workforce to make a difference. Again, it's not magic. But it does seem to me, Jane, that if you could train just in time, you, know, you were talking about digital work instructions, it would seem to me that there's two kinds of fixes to these challenges. One is obviously working on the culture and the compensation and the excitement around the work so that you get a better workforce. And there are some countries where there are structural things that the government does, making it harder to fire people, or basically just encouraging employers to build these more stable careers, which you know Japan and Germany come to mind in manufacturing and Scandinavia more generally. But the other thing is, of course, to make work itself just quicker to jump into so that the training isn't five months to understand a machine. It actually shows up as digital work instructions right there. 
have you seen any changes there? And you know, the frontline operation platforms that you have experienced, is that process being taken care of, that challenge of training? So we've absolutely, we're doing that at Stanley Black & Decker. And I'm hoping as I explore other companies that I see more of it happening. At Stanley, we would video record and train through DeepHow, which uh, is AI and you can translate the language and, and then build the applications with Tulip and actually record the whole thing and train people that way. So for, it might have taken, you know, for example, two hours to train on one thing on one machine, we could then do in a few minutes, and then you have it available at the station where you've got a deep house screen for, hey, do you want to rewatch this? And then you maybe have a work construction screen for Tulip as to, as to what's happening and, and your Gemba boards and things like that. So I, I do see a change there because with the shifting workforce and then and layoffs that happen or you know turnover of personnel, you've got to find a way to quickly train or you're never going to make progress. And, and using technology has definitely made an impact at Stanley. Well, as as you're looking to take your next step, I know that you're you're sort of getting involved with advising companies, and uh, because these things don't happen automatically, and and it does take sometimes an experienced hand to take a good look at what management thinks that they want to change and have that balance of understanding the language of management and understanding the operator needs. I just wanted you to lastly kind of fill us in a little bit on as you're advising, let's call it, you know, small and medium-sized manufacturers or, or even sort of mid-sized manufacturers. What are the few things that they should start with when they're considering making improvements? What is the process for you that you kind of lead them with? When I meet with a company, say a mid-sized company, and talk about how can we implement technology in the manufacturing space, we start with a discussion about what's possible. You know, not some pie in the sky, the art of the possible, but based on my 30 plus years of experience, what have I accomplished and how did I do it and what did I find to be successful? Seeing the, the light go on, you know, behind people's eyes when they're talking to me and understanding, wow, this really is possible and it's not that hard, then it gets them excited. And, and then the next step is, you know, in a factory, you need to look at material flow. Now, it's not the same for chemicals and oil and gas, but in discrete, definitely, you need to make sure that everything's set up properly. And then you start looking at, okay, what are your pain points? Can we add maybe digitalize the, the Gimba board or maybe add work instructions and, and just start piecing it all together. Once you've improved your material flow, you can look and see, does something make sense to actually automate and put robotics in or cobots in? And it's, it's a whole process. There's all kinds of tools that can help companies plan their roadmap. But I feel like the benefit that I can give is that I've worked as an operator, I've worked in the field, and I've worked as a senior executive. And I can speak the language at all the different levels to try and do that engagement. And I, I think that makes a difference. Well, it's fascinating to hear how you are kind of merging these two perspectives of the bottom up and the and the top down, because, you know, I, it seems like regardless the size of an organization, you can't just come at it from, from one angle. Like if you, if you think you have the perfect solution, you might be alienating 
your workers. And if you think you're giving uh, you know workers all the control, then you probably can't scale it across all of your operations. So there is this balance, and some some people you know want to use consultants to help them that for, to do that. Others, I guess, believe in uh, kind of an internal process. But whatever it is, it seems that frontline tools that let you have a bit more control, whether you are an implementer or or the organization themselves, it does help a little bit. Jane, it's been fascinating to hear about your experience. I'm excited to hear about your your next steps. I hope that we can have you back. Uh, undoubtedly, some organization or two is going to benefit from this experience. It, it's not something you can learn overnight, I guess. Experience in manufacturing doesn't come easy. That's true. It, it doesn't. And uh, it's been a fascinating journey for me. As far as me, next steps, I'm kind of exploring some exciting opportunities. And I hope that uh, to catch up with you in the future and let you know how that is all going. Fascinating. Jane, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chant. You have just listened to another episode of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was executing on manufacturing technology. Our guest was Jane Arnold, manufacturing consultant and board member. In this conversation, we talked about advanced manufacturing technology and the importance of material flow transparency, throughput, cost cutting, and of captivating users with digital tools. My takeaway is that execution is everything in manufacturing. You can have any technology you want, but it's only gonna be as good as the execution, both among executives and among managers all along the supply chain and all across the factory. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 100, Innovating Across the Manufacturing Supply Chain. Hopefully you'll find something great in these or in other episodes. And if so, please let us know. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operation platform that connects people, machines, devices, and systems in a production environment. Tulip is democratizing technology by empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industrial tech is heading. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. We are Augmented Pod there and on the Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.